Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. More than two centuries ago this week, on November 30th, 1817, a lieutenant sailed his boat to destruction along the Apalachicola River. His boat contained 40 soldiers and several non-combatant women and children. Seminole, Creeks, and Maroons waited for their passing to open fire. When they came close enough to the shore, the battle began. Nearly everyone on board was killed in the volley, and one white woman was taken prisoner by the Indians. A few survivors made a swim for it and reached a friendly shore. The action outraged the American public and the Monroe administration. Newspapers called it a massacre, a name that stuck until recent times, the Scott Massacre of 1817. The action also inaugurated the First Seminole War to the Americans and the Long War to the Seminole tribe. Why did they attack this military vessel in what was thought to be a time of peace? What precipitated the encounter? And how did American history change decisively as a result? Author and historian Dale Cox returns to the Seminole Wars podcast to assemble this narrative and to analyze its short and long-term effects. Dale Cox, welcome back to the Seminole Wars. That's good to hear you and speak with you. Thank you. Why was this a significant engagement? This was the first major Seminole victory of the Seminole Wars. This battle led to the major U.S. intervention in Florida during the Seminole Wars, and it really led to the continuation of warfare in Florida for the next four decades, really all the way up to the eve of the American Civil War. It led to the Seminole Trail of Tears and to part of the Muscogee Creek Trail of Tears. It led to Florida becoming part of the United States. It was really a history-defining moment. At two centuries removed and with much more information gathered, can we still justify calling it the Scott Massacre? Well, in the term massacre, as you know, it often depends upon the side that's doing the talking. I prefer the term battle. Lieutenant Scott's boat was a military target. There were civilians on the boat. There were seven women and four children that we know about on the boat based on letters from both the U.S. military and from individuals in Florida who had conversations with warriors and chiefs who took part in the battle. It was a military target. It was a military target, but why was it a military target? The Native Americans had been attacked at Fowltown, which was a lower creek village in southwest Georgia, just north of today's Tallahassee, and then Tallahassee as well. And we know that this was a military move. It was an attempt to block supplies from reaching Fort Scott, which was a U.S. command post on the frontier in lands that had been taken from the Creek Nation during the Treaty of Fort Jackson. This was not an attack that was launched indiscriminately. 
It was part of a targeted blockade of the fort, and the fact that there were civilians on the boat was incidental to the nature of the attack. The attack was made against a military vessel. I think the fact that the soldiers could fight back changed it. They were armed. The vessel had artillery on it, which the Seminole, Miccosukee, and Maroon, and Yuchi force did not have. The vessel was out in the middle of the river as it came upstream, and had Lieutenant Scott, I think, used sound military judgment on his way up the river, he was warned that this attack was coming and chose to proceed without waiting for reinforcements. So it was an unannounced attack, but it was not a surprise attack. He knew it was coming. And so he did not necessarily use the best of military judgment. At least half of the soldiers on board had what at that time were state-of-the-art military muskets. That's probably about the equivalent of the armament of the attacking force. Plus, they had artillery on the vessel, and they should have been out well into the river at the time of the attack and were not. He sent a request for reinforcements, but then did not allow time for that request to reach the fort that he was en route to. So had he done some basic military things, he probably would have fared better, but he didn't. He chose not to do so. Dale, the title of your book, The Fort Scott Massacre or The Fort Scott Battle? title of the book is The Scott Battle of 1817. The original edition was The Scott Massacre of 1817, back probably a decade ago. And then from the second edition on, it has been called The Scott Battle of 1817. Times have changed, and I try to adapt with the times. And also, we've added a lot of information with the newer editions. Like a lot of things, even in the Native American community, our view on and how we communicate things have changed. You know, in discussions with, with other Native Americans, we've talked about it. I initiated a discussion, and I said, what do you think? This has always been called The Scott Massacre. Do you think I should continue to call it that because it's always been called that, or should I? I initiate an effort to change the name of this battle. I have Seminole friends. I have Togi friends. I have Cherokee friends. I have Choctaw friends. I have Creek friends. And I'm Yuchi Creek. So we all had this discussion among my friends and other historians, and we all kind of came to terms and said, let's call it a battle. And so from the second edition on, we started calling it a battle. And the new interpretation that just went up at the battlefield last year refers to it as the Scott Battle. It was a more educated discussion about was it a battle? Was it a massacre? A lot of people were killed in it, yes. The majority of one side was killed in it. But was this a military target? Was it primarily an attack on civilians? Was it part of a military conflict? Was it an unprovoked attack? There's a lot of reasons to look at it. Was this an attack on a helpless force or was this an attack on a force that should have been capable of defending itself, that had been alerted that an attack was coming? You know, there's a lot of things to look at in this Custer's last stand. We now call it the Battle of Little Bighorn for good reason. Custer knew what he was getting into. And in this case, Scott knew that an attack was coming. He was the commander of a military force and he was warned that a battle was coming. And other people can judge the moral correctness of initiating the war, but the United States had initiated the war. It was a war I don't think anyone involved in initiating the war could have realized they were initiating a four-decade-long conflict, which is, I think, for those of us who study the Seminole Wars, one of the things that make them both intriguing and tragic. And in studying both sides of the conflict, when you look at them from the Native American perspective, this heroic stand that took place for four decades to fight for a homeland, and from the United States side, 
to wage a four-decade-long conflict against really a small group of people makes this such an intriguing military story. This was the battle, this battle and that small little skirmishing at Fowltown, this is what started it all. When you really look at all of that and you look at the circumstances surrounding it, it becomes very apparent that it was a military engagement much more than it was an intentional attack to wipe out civilians or an unsuspecting party of, of soldiers. How did the politicians in Washington use the Scott Battle of 1817 to what they believed was the advantage of the United States? The Monroe administration, and particularly John Quincy Adams, used the Scott Battle of 1817 as a real sledgehammer on Spain to say surrender Florida. On one hand, they said, you've got to put enough troops in Florida to make sure this never happens again. And on the other hand, they said, you were responsible for this because you didn't have enough troops in Florida to make sure this didn't happen. You didn't control your borders. And we've got an army on our borders right now to make sure it doesn't happen again. And they did have an army on the border from the St. Mary's River all the way over to the Escambia Conecuh River in Alabama. They had an army all along the border, the United States did. And Spain simply could not do it. They did not have the financial will to put an army all the way across the Florida border. And they really were left with no position but to negotiate the best deal they could, which was, okay, we will surrender Florida to you if you agree to, to paraphrase a modern term, don't mess with Texas. And the United States agreed. And so the treaty was signed and Florida became part of the United States. This battle, the Scott battle on the Apalachicola River is what, without a doubt, the United States used as the sledgehammer to force Spain to surrender in order to the United States. So how does this battle, called a massacre, stack up against other battles that were called massacres? You often have a situation where we think of like uh, the Washita Massacre in Oklahoma, where you had the 7th Cavalry under Custer and other forces that go out and they attack a peaceful village because there may have been some warriors there who were involved in attacks along the frontier. That, to me, is more of a massacre. Or you may take a situation where you have a Native American force that goes and attacks a sleeping community that may have had some people from that community that have been involved in attacks on Native American communities. In this case, it's different because you have, you have a military target that is manned by U.S. soldiers that is making its way upriver on a military vessel, and the U.S. military has opened hostilities. This is not the same thing as where you're attacking civilian targets. This is a military target after the U.S. military has opened hostilities. So I think in that case, you really have to look at this as this is a battle, and there are civilians caught in the crossfire of that battle. In this case, you did have some sick soldiers on the boat, but I suspect that everyone who was capable of raising a weapon was fighting back in this battle. You also have to realize that not just the U.S. military, but when officials in Washington, which is the case that happened here, sent orders down to General Gaines on the frontier and instructed him to go to Fowltown, which was the seat of Neomothla, who was a primary chief in the Lower Creek Towns, and told Gaines to go to Fowltown, take the principal chief and some of his primary sub-chiefs and warriors hostage until the chief's people agreed to leave land ceded at the Treaty of Fort Jackson. That's instigating warfare. And troops go to Fowltown, surround the village in the middle of the night, 
and open fire on men, women, and children indiscriminately, you're going to get reprisal. Even today, in that kind of situation, you know, you're going to get a reprisal. And that's what this was. This infuriated not just the people of Fowltown, this infuriated warriors all along the frontier, and not just the Lower Creek warriors of Fowltown and their family connections. This infuriated Seminole warriors in Tallahassee, and all across North Florida, it infuriated the Miccosukee, it infuriated the Alachua Seminoles over on the Suwannee, it infuriated the Maroon Warriors uh, from Nero's Town, which was also on the Suwannee, and they all came. And they viewed this as war having been opened against them. They came to Neomopolis' aid and assistance. Strategy was developed to try to stop supplies from reaching U.S. military posts on the frontier, and that's what this was. I'm not sure the U.S. Army even calls it a Battle of Fowltown. Had they been more successful, they might have called it the Fowltown Massacre. I would say that it could easily have been. The first attack took place in the darkness, and most of the people of Fowltown were able to escape the U.S. attack. You did have a couple of people, one warrior, a couple of warriors maybe, one woman killed in the attack. Most of the people escaped. And so the sheer volume of the killing did not reach the level of massacre. And Fowltown also, what we consider as the battle or the skirmish of Fowltown, actually involved two actions. The second action could actually be construed as a victory for the Native Americans. They kept up a pretty intense fight for about 20 minutes, and the result of it was that the U.S. forces withdrew. Because of that, I don't think it could be called a massacre, but you know, had the U.S. forces been more successful in their volley of fire into the darkness, it easily could have been. What was the objective here? The objective of going into Fowltown was simply to take hostages, to kidnap people. And this was not General Gaines's decision. It was not even Andrew Jackson's decision. It was the decision of people in Washington, D.C., like James Monroe and John Z. Calhoun and people like that, who felt, well, we'll just go there and we'll kidnap their chiefs and their principal warriors or primary warriors. To what end? That'll convince their followers to evacuate lands that were ceded in the United States at this Treaty of Fort Jackson, a treaty to which the people of Fowltown, you know, were not even a party. And that's what Nehemiah had told them was that, look, I didn't have anything to do with that treaty. I didn't sign it. I wasn't invited to sign it. Um, this is my land. It's always been my land. And I'm directed by the powers above to defend it, and I will do so. So they went, they surrounded this town in the night, and they expected the, the inhabitants of the town to wake up at sunrise and see them there and be so stunned that they would just meekly surrender their chief and primary warriors to the United States Army and then peacefully go away was the plan. It may not have been the intent, but it certainly stirred up a hornet's nest among the Native Americans. Absolutely. Seminole and, and Miccosukee and Muscogee people would see it that way. And I think many, many thinking people would look at it and go, yeah, I think you really would have to see that that's the likelihood of what would happen. You look at that. And then after firing broke out and people were killed, you have to know that there's going to be a reprisal. And then you have Lieutenant Richard W. Scott coming up the Apalachicola River in a boat, and he's warned that there's going to be an attack on you, don't go. And then he keeps going. He's taking a big risk by doing that. In the big scheme of things, this battle, or maybe even skirmish, a foul town, wasn't a big deal to the U.S. Army, and they didn't consider it so. But it was a big deal to the Native Americans. 
this raid on Fowltown to the U.S. military, which has just finished fighting the War of 1812 and the Creek War of 1813-1814, and the East Florida events over the Patriot War and, and those related events over in East Florida on Amelia Island around St. Augustine and even down into the uh, Payne's Prairie area. They don't see this as a very big event at all. They see it as a minor skirmish. One U.S. soldier is killed. A couple of warriors are killed. One woman is killed. They just don't see it as that big of a thing. But to the Miccosukee, to the Seminoles of the area, to the Maroons, who never really got into action with them during the War of 1812, they have crossed that Flint River and invaded their territory. Was a Native American response, any response, destined then to lead to all-out war? I think it would have. I think any firing on U.S. forces would have been used as an excuse by the United States at a minimum attempt to clear anyone living in those Fort Jackson Treaty lands out of those lands. What the Scott attack did was open the door for the U.S. government to order Jackson's invasion of Florida. And that's the big difference there. What happened is that most of the nation, if they heard anything at all about the Fowltown attacks, it wasn't much that they heard about it. But what they did hear was about the attack on the Scott party and on the boat, because the reports that came out, they were in the same report. The report came out reading, we have a serious event to report to you. One of our boats coming up the river has been attacked. Nearly 40 soldiers have been killed. They've wiped out a group of women. And the military reports don't mention the children, but private letters do. They pick the children up. They bash their heads against the sides of the boat. They did all this stuff. And then at the bottom of it, they mention, oh, and by the way, just before this, we sent some soldiers over and attacked their village. So the headline is the Seminoles have attacked U.S. military vessel. And so then the demand is we've got to go in there and punish them. And we've got to hunt down these perpetrators no matter what swamp they're hiding in is kind of the way it was phrased at that time. And then it's also a lot of emphasis is placed on the fact that there are Maroons, that there are the United States phrase them Negroes down in Florida are part of this, that these escaped slaves down in Florida are part of this attack. And they're using Spanish Florida as a hiding place to come out and attack us. If we don't do something about it, the whole southern frontier is going to be aflame and nobody's going to be safe. So that's a big part of it as well. And as, of course, as you know, that continues right on through the Second Seminole War. Although it may not have been the U.S. Army's intent to kill civilians in the village, one did die. In the attack on Fowltown, in the first volley of the Seminole Wars, which was fired at Fowltown by the United States, among the people killed was a woman at Fowltown. The reports of the Scott battle certainly inflamed passions throughout the United States. However, it should be noted, mutilating corpses was not something limited to Seminoles on whites. Whites had a long history of doing it to Indians. It went both ways. It went back a long, long way through history. I mean, some of the earliest descriptions we have of warfare in the southeastern tribes are of battle trophies, and, and some of the earliest paintings we have and sketches we have are of battle trophies. It was also common among the frontier whites. They did the same thing. We know that at the Battle of the Thames, when they killed Tecumseh, they took strips of his skin and made razor strops from them. It went both ways, and it did. We know that that was also one of the ways that the frontier white militia would account for how many Native Americans they killed in battles. They'd bring back scalps, or they would pay for scalps when they would send out raiding parties of allied Native Americans during, say, the Yamasee War 
or things like that. They would pay them to bring in scalps, and that was the way it was done. So this went both ways, and it carried on through history. It is a tragic double standard. If you look at these particular groups of Native Americans and Maroons who were involved in the Scott battle, they signed during the War of 1812 an agreement with the British that they would spare women and children captured in battle. And it is an interesting fact that during the Scott battle, the one woman who was still alive that we know about who was still alive when they actually took the boat, they did spare her life. And she was still alive and was recaptured the following spring. Her name was Elizabeth Stewart. And Elizabeth was recaptured by Yuchi forces allied with the United States the following year and went on to live a long life on the frontier. She actually lived to see the Civil War and lived out the rest of her life in Fort Gaines, Georgia. They often did. They often did spare children. In this case, four children were not spared, but there was a lot of anger over the woman being killed at Fowltown. And um, I think that probably had something to do with some of the civilian casualties during the Scott battle. Also, you had the fact that the boat was in the open river, and when the volleys were fired on it, pretty much everyone within sight on the boat went down in the first volley. There were survivors of the Scott battle, just as was the case in the Dade battle. Ransom Clark is the best-known survivor of the Dade battle, but there was another who made it back and less is known about. In the case of the Scott battle, there were, and there's a little bit of disagreement as to whether it was five or six, there were at least five, possibly six, who survived and made it back to Fort Scott. They actually made it across the river by swimming away underwater. They made it to the town of Yellowhair, who was a chief allied with the United States, and his warriors got them safely back to Fort Scott. Five of them were badly wounded. We know from the military records that several of them were permanently disabled, which was not a good thing to be in those days because you didn't have permanent medical care. It's not a good thing to be today, but in those days, you didn't have any continuing medical care. You didn't have any form of disability payments or anything like that. In those days, you were just kind of on your own once you left the military. But they did make it back to the fort and kind of told the story of what had happened. And then you had Elizabeth Stewart, who survived. She was spared by a warrior who said that sometime earlier in St. Mary's, Georgia, he had fallen and ill with a fever and that a woman who lived near there had taken pity on him and had nursed him back to health. And he felt that he owed a life for that and he spared her life, that he found her knocked unconscious during the battle, uh, but realized that she was still alive, that he spared her life. He took her back home, nursed her back to health and that she lived with his family until Battle of Econfina, which is over near Perry, Florida, in which 36 or 37 warriors were killed following spring, and she was rescued by U.S. forces in that battle. Her survival was a matter of special circumstances. It was a special circumstance, but it's not necessarily true that they did not take prisoners. Um, you know, Fort Mims, for example, during the Creek War of 1813, 1814, actually they did take a number of prisoners there, especially women and children. They did spare a number of African-American slaves there. And although it's often said that, you know, they killed everyone there, every man, woman, and child, that's not true. They did spare a number of people at Fort Mims. They often did in military battles spare prisoners. And so oftentimes what we accept as history is not real history. And when you really get into, especially after the war, 
and you begin to research the records of people being returned to their families, we begin to find out that, yes, prisoners were taken, and in many cases they were returned to their families after the conflict. What do we know about her captivity? It's not really stated, and she never gave, so far as I've been able to find, a, um, a first-person account of her time with her captor. She was kept by Peter McQueen's band, and that's who this warrior was attached to. And so far as I've ever been able to find, she never gave a first-person interview or wrote a first-person account of her time. There's a fascinating legend that as warriors from this group went out and fought in different battles or went on different raids, that they would come back and if they captured gunpowder, they knew what to do with that. Or if they captured some gold or silver or whatever, they knew what to do with that. But paper money had no value to them or script in those days. And so she would take this script and stash it in her dress. By the time she was released, um, she was the wealthiest woman on the southern frontier, according to the legend. And uh, she became a single woman within a few years after that. And by that point, she was the wealthiest single woman on the southern frontier. And so then she became the most suited woman on the southern frontier, uh, lived out the rest of her life until she became widowed late in life, a very wealthy woman in Fort Gaines, Georgia. What were these paper scripts that she collected? Paper script was issued. People were often paid in script in those days, whether it was from trading companies or government script or things like that in those days. This was back in the days when uh, people were still trading in Spanish gold and silver for the most part. Basically, it was an IOU where a company would give you an IOU or the government would give you an IOU, then you could trade that in for gold and silver. But she collected all this money during the war, and then after the war, then suddenly she had collected all these IOUs or script that she could then trade in for gold and silver, and she was very wealthy by the time she was liberated and set free. But she never gave much of, of an account of her life during the time that she was kept prisoner, but she was held in very high regard in Fort Gaines and owned a number of homes. There, Two of her homes are still standing in the little town of Fort Gaines today. She did late in life write a letter and she just talked about the misfortunes that had fallen on her after the death of her husband later in life, but I've not been able to find a copy of that letter yet, and that's a current research project of mine. In those days, people wanted detail, but they also were a little more delicate than reporters are today. And so they just would say, and for out of respect to her, we did not ask her many questions. What was the name of the Indian who treated her kindly? His name was also Yellow Hair, according to one of the accounts. Now, whether that account was written so long after the fact that that's accurate or not, I don't know. Some other parts of that account are a little bit suspect, but that's the name that's given. And it could be confusing that with the chief who saved the other soldiers who were spared. Tell us more about this foul town. Was it in Spanish territory? Was it in U.S. territory? Sure. Okay, Fowltown was not in Spanish territory. Fowltown was within what had been part of Creek territory. It was within today's state of Georgia. In fact, it's about four miles south of today's city of Bainbridge, Georgia. The issue there for the people of Fowltown was that they did not consider themselves as part of or party to the Treaty of Fort Jackson. They had not been involved in it. They did not sign it. They were not invited to the signing. They were not represented. They just didn't think they had anything to do with it. It had always been considered their land. They had talked to the United States military previously and told them, look, don't come across the Flint River. Everything south of that river is ours. It always has been ours. And that's that. The United States tried to tell them 
you've got to go. It's ours now. And their response was, no, it's not. And, and there you go. And so Fowltown, the United States, claimed it was their land, and the uh, Lower Creeks who lived there said it was theirs. Okay, with that as a geographic center, where was the Scott Battle? The Scott Battle took place in Spanish territory. And so you had a U.S. vessel coming up the Apalachicola River, which was a Spanish river entirely. It was south of the international border, but it was without doubt in Spanish slash Muscogee Creek territory slash Seminole territory. The United States built a fort in what it considered U.S. territory per the Treaty of Fort Jackson. It was territory that Spain did not object to that fort because it didn't claim territory north of the international border. But it did object to those U.S. vessels going up and down the Apalachicola River because they were not paying duties on those shipments up and down the river. Sounded like both parties were talking past each other. You had, on the part of the United States, a lack of comprehension that everyone in Florida was all... I think the United States looked at Florida and saw Seminole and didn't understand that at that time there was not an organized group that you could point at and say, these people are all the same. Like the United States looked at government as a European style thing, okay? And in Florida, you had so many different groups still. You didn't have, like today, you have, South Florida, you have the Miccosukee and the Seminole tribes, okay? In those days, you had Alachua Seminoles, you had Nero's group of Maroons, you had the Apalachicola River Seminoles, you had the Tallahassee Seminoles, you had the Miccosukees, you had Uchis, you had Red Sticks, you had all these different groups, you had the Choctahatchee Red Sticks who were not governed, you had all these different groups who were governed by their own leaders who were not under any single council or any single authority. And they all kind of did their own thing. And no real chief, even in a town, the town chief didn't have any particular authority over the young warriors. He could plead with them or ask them not to do things, but they would go do what they saw fit. This led to trouble across the border between Indians and whites and tit-for-tat raiding and worse. Let's say you had a group from Georgia come down to Bolex town and raid for cattle which they did do regularly. Then they would go back into Georgia with the cattle. Well, then a group of warriors would go into Georgia and raid and come back down. And so you had this predatory warfare going on that had been going on since the start of the Patriot War in East Florida, probably even before, all the way back to the William Augustus Bowles days. For our purposes in discussing the cause of the first Seminole War, it began with the tragedy of the Garrett family in retaliation. And it sure seemed indiscriminate, or was it? What they said at the Garrett house was that they found a kettle belonging to one of the people who had raided cattle and killed a member of Bolek's band. They considered that, in the Scott-Irish way of putting it, an eye for an eye. Well, then the United States blames all of the people, all of the Native Americans of Florida, the Seminole, as they called them, for the attack on the Garrett family and demands that those responsible be turned over. So they send a letter to the Miccosukee, okay, saying, turn them over. Okay, Kapashimiko, the leader of the Miccosukee, writes back and says, I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, we didn't have anything to do with it. And they didn't. 
this infuriates the United States. The Nikosuke hadn't had anything to do with it. But he did say, well, I hear that, you know, the uh, the lady who was killed had a kettle belonging to one of the people from whom the cattle had been stolen and one of their people killed. And he tries to explain it, but all the nuances are lost. And this is an understandable thing, because even today, it's hard to keep track of who is who when you start to look at all these all these different groups. And the United States doesn't understand it. The U.S. officials don't understand it. And they don't understand that when you're dealing with, with Bolek over on the, the Swanee, that that might not be the same as Kapashimiko at Kasuki or William Perryman on the Apalachicola or Holmes over on the Choctahatchee, that these aren't all connected. They might know each other, but that's about the best that can be said of them. These predatory raids that are going back and forth involve all different groups, and some of them might have heard of what's going on, but they're not involved. And so then you have Niamatla up there, who he's often referred to as a Miccosukee, but he was not. He was on Mahichiti Creek. He's often said, well, he spoke the same language as the Miccosukee. But he was not subject to Miccosukee. He was not a sub-village of Miccosukee. He was his own man. He didn't answer to the Miccosukee. He was allied with them after the war started. But he moved down there after his own town was burned during the Creek War of 1813-1814. But he was on territory that had been part of his family, you know, forever. This is all a confusing thing, and it confused the United States back then because they just want to look at if you're down there, you're a Seminole. Who's the head of the Seminoles? And there is no head. There's no supreme leader of the Seminoles. And even if there was, that person can't exert authority over all of these different chiefs and all these different towns and all of these different warriors. And then if you go to war, you have different war chiefs. And that's a difficult concept for the United States leaders to grasp. They never really did. And then you have the double thing of, well, they're on Fort Jackson Treaty land. So they need to go. By one hand, you're saying they're Seminoles subject to be responsible for one group of Seminoles did all the way over in near St. Mary's, Georgia. But on the other hand, you're saying they're Creeks who are subject to the terms of the Fort Jackson Treaty. So you're holding them accountable for two different nations for two different things. And they're caught in the middle. That's what happened. And that's why Nehemiah is so frustrated with them and why he finally says, I don't want to say anything more to you. I don't want anything more to do with you. Leave me alone. And that's literally what he tells them in July of 1817. Just leave me alone. I don't want anything else to do with you. Their response to that is to come and try to kidnap him. How did we get to this point? In the last days of the War of 1812 at what is now Chattahoochee, all these groups had signed a mutual defense pact that the British organized them to sign. This treaty at Nichols Outpost, it was a British fort that's at what is now Chattahoochee. They agreed to defend each other if attacked by the United States. This document, uh, it's an interesting document. It really is the foundational military foundational document of what became the Seminole, modern Seminole. And this document says that if one of us is attacked, we're all going to, we're going to come to their aid. And that's what they did from all over Florida, from the Alachaway to the Alabama Creeks over around Pensacola, they all come and they all joined the war effort. Now you've got 25 to 3,500 warriors on the Apalachicola River ready to fight. You write in your book that it was a massive victory, 
But the U.S. response was much more than the Seminole Creek had expected. Right. By achieving this massive victory on the Apalachicola River at today's Chattahoochee, they created the scenario by which the United States could claim that it had been attacked. And as this word spread north of this attack on a U.S. Army vessel and the destruction of this U.S. Army force, they had opened the door for the President of the United States and the Secretary of War to order Andrew Jackson to raise an army and invade Spanish Florida. And the result of that would be what the United States and what modern historians call the First Seminole War, what for Native American people would be the first phase of the Seminole War to come in and destroy the seminole Miccosukee Alliance in North Florida. That would lead to the establishment of this reservation in Central Florida and the three small reservations along the Apalachicola River. It destroyed the North Florida homeland of the seminole Miccosukee and allied people. The Seminole Creek weren't expecting that the United States would cross the international boundary into Spanish Florida. That is correct, and they also were expecting relief from the British. When the British had evacuated at the end of the War of 1812, which was in 1815, they were expecting their treaty with Great Britain to be ratified. At the time the war erupted, they were still expecting ratification and support from the British. The supplies they were expecting never came. They had two, I don't know the right word for them, but they had Alexander Arbuthnot and they had Lieutenant Armbruster, who had been in the British Royal Marines, were active in North Florida at this time. And you also had George Woodbine, who had been active as a major in the British Marines. He was also active in Florida at this time. And they were telling them that supplies are coming, troops are coming, we're going to support you. But the support never materialized. They were very, very successful during the early phases of the war. In fact, they almost forced the U.S. Army to evacuate all of what is today South Georgia. But the longer the war went on, ammunition ran out, supplies ran out. And then they couldn't stand against the U.S. Army. Had their strategy succeeded, what might the landscape have looked like? Had their strategy that they employed in the first war worked, and they came very, very close. I mean, they were within a week or so of taking Fort Scott. Had Andrew Jackson been one week slower, they would have captured Fort Scott and the whole Georgia frontier would have fallen. That's how close it was. They were very close. They really put pressure on the U.S. Army. It was close. I mean, the longest siege of the Seminole Wars took place during the first Seminole War at the Battle of Ochesi. They really got close to taking back all, at least, of the Georgia lands taken by the Treaty of Fort Jackson. Most people don't realize this. There were first Seminole War battles fought 100 miles north of Mobile, Alabama, and all the way north to today's Fort Benning, Georgia. This war was spread into central Alabama, into western Alabama, into central Georgia, all the way almost to the Atlantic coast and all the way to the Gulf Coast. Most people think of it today as Jackson's invasion, but that's the history that we've been told. It was actually much more spread out than we realize, and it was much closer to being a significant Seminole Alliance victory than we realized. But then Jackson arrived just in the nick of time for the United States. Our things could have been very different. And once more for the record, what was the Seminole Creek strategy? Prophet Josiah Francis was directing the war effort. And he had learned from the Creek War not to try to take on the U.S. Army in a head-to-head battle. So what he was trying to do was to cut off supplies to the U.S. Army. 
And if he could achieve that, then he could force the evacuation of these posts and force the U.S. armies to withdraw. And it was a very sound strategy. He was hitting the supply lines. He was from arms and ammunition and then possibly volunteer troops from the Bahamas. But if they could get arms and ammunition and then maybe some volunteers from the Bahamas, they felt that they could reconquer lost territory uh, in the southeast. Their strategy was to, that they could at a minimum hold their territory, but if all went extremely well, reconquer lost lands from the Treaty of Fort Jackson. That was a pretty close to being achieved goal for at least some of the Fort Jackson lands. And I think people who study these wars, who just read historians, this always frustrates me, historians like to just revamp what other historians write. And they tend to, well, here's my thoughts on what these other historians write. Let me write a book. Instead of going back and looking at the sources or looking at raw, raw documentation or trying to find new documentation, they got much closer. I mean, commander of Fort Scott was within days of evacuating. And had he evacuated Fort Scott, disaster would have hit the United States. It was really, really close. And the prophet's war plan was a good one. And then they were planning to just, the U.S. Army wanted to invade, let them invade, and then we'll cut their supply line and starve them. And they could go, and you can go as far south as you want to. We're going to cut your supply lines and starve you out. That was what Francis had learned from the Creek Wars. We're not going to find another horseshoe bend with you. We're just going to let you march south into the deep south and starve you. What was the big military action before the first Seminole War began along the Apalachicola River? The one that kind of sets the stage for it is called the Fort at Prospect Bluff. This is the story of the last days of the Creek War of 1813-1814 and the uh, British post on the Apalachicola River and then, of course, the destruction of the Fort at Prospect Bluff, or as many people know it, the Negro Fort. This really gets into the British records of this and the Spanish records of it. And there's a lot of new documentation in there that I think people have not read before. It is probably a lot of new documentation that has not been published before. And it sets the stage for the First Seminole War, but it also, I think, is a good standalone for the last stage of the War of 1812 in Florida on the Gulf Coast. So the fort at Prospect Bluff tells that story. And the book on Fowltown? Yeah, Fowltown is an in-depth look at the Battle of Fowltown and what happened with Neomothla and with uh, General Gaines and Major David E. Twiggs, both of whom play a, a prominent role on through the Seminole Wars in Florida. Neomothla is a prominent figure, and you're going to find many other individuals in there on both sides who are prominent through the Seminole Wars in Florida, Abraham, many other individuals. And this tells you about this first exchange of fire that starts the Seminole Wars, that starts four decades of war, and what this confrontation on the border was about, what really happened, why they fought at this little village that is in between the little towns of Bainbridge and today's Tallahassee, Florida, and why Neomothla fought so hard, and why the United States tried to stage a government sanctioned military kidnapping there that led to this uh, massive conflict that we're still refighting in podcasts and books today to make the Lower Creek and Seminole people compliant, to make them do what they wanted them to do. You have to give up your land. Give up your land and go. That was it. We want the land. And Neomothla was saying no. Neomothla, one of the greatest speeches, not just in Native American history, one of the greatest speeches in world history was a speech that Neomothla gave that summer of 1817 when he said, I am directed by the powers above 
to defend it and shall do so. That's the kind of speech that stirs the soul. Niamatla was a great and eloquent speaker, and that's what he told the U.S. Army that summer, knowing that he was up against an overwhelming force, and he made clear, I will fight. I don't care how many people you have. I will fight you. Dale, what other books do you have that's related to the First Seminole War in some fashion? We have two others. We have Fort Gaines, A Military History, which is the story of Fort Gaines, Georgia, which was the initial fort from which all of this spread out. And then we have Fort Scott, Fort Hughes, and Camp Recovery, which is a single book. But Fort Scott was the command post from which the stage of the Seminole Wars, known as the First Seminole Wars, all took place. And then it remained the U.S. command post on the frontier all the way up until 1821 when Florida was ceded to the United States. And so it looks at both the First Seminole War and at the U.S. pressure campaign on Spain to surrender Florida. Those are the key ones. And then we have, of course, you've talked to Rachel, I believe, about Millie Francis. We have Millie Francis that talks about an incident from the First Seminole War. But then there's a long project that has been underway that is nearing completion now that is a history of the First Seminole War. It's a documentary history of the First Seminole War. But what's going to be interesting about it is that it is in two parts. Part one is looks at the U.S. documentation of the war, and part two looks at the war through the Native American eyes. It's as related by Native American speakers and writers. There is a lot of material there, and we've also been able to find a treasure trove of letters that were written on behalf of both the Prophet Francis, uh, Peter McQueen, and a number of others. So I think it's going to be fascinating reading because what we're trying to do here is assemble all of the key documentation about the war. There's going to be a wealth of documentation there that people have not had a chance to read before from both perspectives, but I think we're really going to enjoy it. There's a lot of new Spanish documentation. There's a lot of new British documentation. There is a lot of diary and uh, journal and uh, letter type documentation that is going to present a view from the Seminole, Miccosukee, Maroon, Uchi side of the war that has never been presented before. It will be two volumes. They'll be released at the same time. And we're really excited about that. And it will be, I think, something new for the Seminole Wars. What gave you the idea to do a double story for the first Seminole War? I got the idea from the books that were done very, very well on the Trail of Tears, Leaning Their Way Onward was the name of this books, where one part was history and the second part was the documentation. But instead, in our case, we're going to link the documentation with history to describe what was happening to put the letters in perspective. And then the letters and the sources will be uh, printed in their entirety, linked with narrative. At 200 years past the events, haven't we exhausted all we can say about it? Cuban archives were only available to us in the, to the degree that they are in recent times, and there's a wealth of material in Great Britain that has not been tapped. Nichols' family papers from Lieutenant Colonel Edward Nichols have been out there, and no one has ever tapped them before. That We started to use them in the Prospect Bluff book. There was more and more and more that we found. We found the William Hambly papers that were out there that had never been used before. And William Hambly was one of the individuals associated with John Ford 
Forbes and Company and played a principal role in the First Seminole War. There are so many letters out there. There are so many journals and so many things. Much of the research on the Seminole Wars that has been done has entailed the second phase of the Seminole Wars, the Second Seminole War. The First Seminole War, everyone kind of has looked at the Jackson phase of it and has considered that enough. But there's so much more out there that has just been begging for a fresh look. And so there's been some good scholarship done in recent years that I thought maybe it's time to go do a deep deep dive and let's just see what's out there. In terms of documentation, which is the part I always fascinated with anyway, maybe there are new accounts out there. What happened to Josiah Francis's son? What happened to his family? What happened? Are there other accounts? We know there were some accounts that were written out of North Florida during the war. Are there others? Can we find others? And we did. And so we're very excited to be bringing these out publicly. And I think it's going to become essential reading And one thing we're really striving to do is to present them, other than some, you know, adding some punctuation to help some of it make sense, is to present it in original textual format so that when future historians want to use these letters, they can. And that's one of the reasons that we're printing them in their entirety. Dale, as we close this episode, what would you like to add that we didn't cover or should have covered? Yeah, there is something I would like to add. The city of Chattahoochee, with support from the Florida Division of Historical Resources, has done a tremendous job of starting to bring this battlefield into a place where people can visit it today. It is emerging as a heritage destination. There has been a great deal of preservation work done there. You can now go there and visit it. It's at River Landing Park in Chattahoochee. Chattahoochee is a small community. It's on U.S. Highway 90, I'm about an hour west of Tallahassee. It has one interstate exit on I-10. If you get off at the Chattahoochee exit and go to Chattahoochee, you will wind up on Highway 90, go to River Landing Park. And when you go down there, there's a large prehistoric Native American mound right at the river. And that's right where the battle took place. In fact, this mound is mentioned in accounts of the battle. If you go there in the area around this mound, you'll see other mounds there. And there is interpretation about these mounds. And in fact, we're working right now with the National Park Service and with the Seminole Tribe of Florida to do some better riverfront preservation of the mounds. But you will find new interpretive panels that were paid for by the state that tell the story of the Scott battle, that tell the story of the First Seminole War, that tell the story of the Maroons there, that tell about the Apalachicola River and other history there. It's a great stop. It's a great place to stop and have lunch or spend a few hours exploring and learning history. And it's a great new stop. It's mentioned in the, uh, in the Seminole War Trail book about Florida, and it's a great place to stop and learn Seminole history and to learn something about the Seminole Wars up in North Florida and in the Panhandle region. And it's a beautiful place to see the Apalachicola River. You can also visit uh, the Chattahoochee Landing Mound Group there. You can also visit Florida's Inland Graveyard of Ships there, which is a series of steamboat wrecks, which you can actually step up to and see there. And there are interpretive markers about them, too. It's a It's a really intriguing destination that is a beautiful spot. Dale Cox, we're out of time. Thanks for joining us once again for The Seminole Wars. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep this show going. 
visit our website at www.summonawars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted. The Seminole Wars Foundation 2021. All rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden, Roastem, provided by kind permission of Rita Youngman. Back bumper music, Second Seminole Win, by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman. All rights reserved.